It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family. Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing financial advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Call Doug, Linda, and Deborah at their office, 919-872-7000, with your financial planning questions. That's 919 919- Now, here are Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Shalindra, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? Hi, how are you doing? All right. Uh, I have a question about whole life versus term life. Is it better to uh, take a whole life policy uh, or take a term life and invest the rest of the money somewhere else? It depends on the situation. Tell me a little bit, how old are you, Shalandra? Uh, actually, what I have uh, done is uh, I have taken uh, insurance policies for my kids as, uh, on advice of an insurance agent. Uh, how old are your children? Uh, 12 years. Oh, that's dumb. You don't need any insurance on your children's life because the only reason you buy life insurance is, I don't mean it's dumb on your part, it's dumb on the agent's part. Of course, it wasn't dumb. He probably got a nice commission. But the point is, that's a common sales technique that insurance agents use. Mm -hmm. The only reason you need life insurance is to replace the income Mm -hmm. of someone who needs that income. Now, your children's death, God forbid they die, it's not going to hurt your income, right? It's not for the income. I thought when they go to college, uh, I can take money out from there and pay for college. Yeah, that's, that's also a bad decision. That's not why you buy insurance. You buy insurance for somebody's dying. That's the only reason you buy insurance. Never buy insurance to pay for somebody's college because you don't get it. What you have to do then is make a loan against your policy and borrow your own money back. No, that, that, that's a bad move. Never do that. Again, that's a, strategy, that's a strategy that insurance agents put out about why you can pay for college education. No, forget all of that. The only way that you win in life insurance is if somebody dies. And in this case here, the chance of your children dying is a lot smaller than the chance of you dying. So in your case here, it's a real easy decision. It's not a matter of whole life or term. It's neither. It's neither. You should have no insurance on those kids at all. So whole life is not a way to go for uh, investment. Oh, no. No, you don't. Insurance is not an investment. I mean, that's very clear. Insurance is not an investment. Insurance is an actuarial game where you... uh, Protect someone after you die. And that's the only way insurance should be used. If you want an investment to invest for college education, then you need an investment strategy to invest for college education. And that's a very simple one uh, that you do. You just figure out how much the future college needs are going to be. You back down into that amount. And then you go ahead and start putting that amount of money into a mutual fund between now and then. Okay. So I don't need to take a whole life form of insurance. How about, uh, my age is 40, and is it, does it make sense? I have a term life now, and the insurance agent is trying to convince me to get whole life policy. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. 
Tell me a little bit about your income. How old did you say you were, Shalandra? 40. You're 40 years old. Uh What's your income? Oh, about uh, 70,000. About 70,000. Is your wife employed? Uh, No. All right. So it's 70,000 is the family income. How old are the children? Uh, 12. uh, Twins, 12 years old. Two children, 12 and 12. Mm -hmm. You've got six years to start college costs, and it's going to be a double hitter for you. Uh, Public school or private school? Uh, most probably public school. Okay. Do you have any insurance on your life at all? Yeah, I have term life. How much do you have? Uh, about 400000 About 400000 of term insurance? Uh-huh. What do you have in the way of, uh, of investment assets? Uh, 401k plan and the house. Just two things. All right. The house is not an investment, and the 401k plan you can't really access because you have to wait till retirement. Uh, okay. I thought I can take money out for college too. Well, you can borrow against it. Yes, you can, and you can access it. But again, what you're doing is you're making one designated use serve two purposes. Oh, okay. In other words, you're taking away from your retirement money. How much are your living expenses running you, Shalandra? Oh, including mortgage, about 3000 a month. All right. So about 36000 a year. Yeah. Uh, what you need to do is you need to add to that number the taxes mm-hmm. and see what the difference is that's left over. Whatever that difference on your 70 is that's left over, mm-hmm. that's the discretionary amount that you've got to solve in six years the college education need. Then, matter of fact, if you will call me at the office, I will show you how to run an educational analysis. You have to then go into it and say, do I want to pay for p- private school or public school? Mm-hmm. And then you run that figure up from today up to the six-year date, mm-hmm. and then you back down again, how much do I need to put into an investment plan to reach that number. And if you can do it, then fine. If not, then we need to go ahead and look at something else. In the meantime, if you've only got six years for the before they start school and you've got 400000 of term insurance, mm-hmm. then the cost of that term insurance is not going to rise significantly in the next, four, in the next six years to where you can't afford it. Eventually, it will. Okay. Eventually, that term insurance will be too expensive for you, and that's where you need to be looking at what happens. You know, you need to get a pro forma of how of, of at what year the insurance will be beyond your ability to pay. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And if you figure that you can accumulate enough to self-insure yourself between now and then, mm-hmm. then keep the low dollars and put the difference into an investment plan for yourself. But you do need to just look at it both ways. All right? If you'll call me at the office, my office number is 872-7000, and I'll go ahead and I'll see if I can uh, if I can give you a little more direction how to run the numbers. Okay, and I should not even think of getting whole life for kids and investment. You want no insurance on your children at all. Okay. Okay? Thank you. All right, thank you for calling, Shalendra. Uh-huh. All right, bye-bye now. Okay, Doug. What is a charitable remainder trust? When our charitable remainder trust, Linda, is a tax-advantaged, irrevocable trust that can provide the client with a lifetime income stream and immediate tax benefits. And the trust principal is ultimately going to go to some sort of a charity, but the charity is going to be directed and chosen by the client to occur after the client's death. And many people that I recommend charitable remainder trust for are people in their 30s or 40s or 50s. What, with sizable estates? 
Actually, they don't even have to have sizable estates. It is simply a tool that can offer many benefits. The predominant benefit is a lifetime income stream starting now. A check, a check a month, if you will, a check a quarter, a lifetime income stream, and also some real strong tax benefits. Well, does a charitable remainder trust offer other benefits? It does offer other benefits besides those two main benefits, one being a lifetime of income and the other is some nice tax benefits now. Because it's irrevocable, it also, after you die, is not subject to probate, avoids 100% of all estate taxes, and is free in most cases from creditor claims. You said it avoids 100% of estate taxes? 100% of estate taxes. Sounds not, like magic. <laughs> not subject to probate. And also, a lot of people are worried about creditor claims. It, is, it puts your assets, take a doctor or a professional who's worried about lawsuits, it can move the assets into a position for the rest of your life where creditors can't attack them. Well, let's look at this a little bit more specifically. What type of client could benefit from a charitable remainder trust? Well, first type of client that comes to my mind, Lynn, is a client with what we call highly appreciated assets. That's fancy language for anything that's grown in value. Maybe it's a, a farmer who's got a piece of tobacco land and it's grown in value tremendously, uh, much more than he paid for it 20 or 30, 40 years ago. It could be a man who's got a stock portfolio or a woman who's got a stock portfolio and it's grown very high. It's called highly appreciated assets and they want to increase their income. They want to reduce their income taxes and at the same time, they're afraid of paying the capital gains tax, and they're worried how to go ahead and shift it from something that's not producing much income to something that is producing income and avoid all of the capital gains tax. That type of person is the first one that comes to my mind. Well, how soon will the Charitable Remainder Trust generate income? If you wish, the Charitable Trust can actually begin paying you almost immediately and can go on for. Uh, quarterly payments or semi-annual payments. Most of the ones that I set up for clients and that I recommend, Lynn, pay quarterly for the rest of the client's lives. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Now, can the income that's generated pass to the children or others? Yes. As a matter of fact, a charitable trust can provide income for the client's life, plus another 20 years, that's the maximum you can get, another 20 years to the children or to anyone else after the client's death. And how is the income taxed? Because we're looking at money that's coming out of the trust, right? That's the real, yeah, that's right, Lynn. And that's the real confusing issue. It's extremely complicated. Of course, the client doesn't have to worry about it. But on the other hand, it is the real sizzle to a charitable trust. The income is called four-tier accounting income. And it, the income earned inside this trust and then paid out to the client is paid out first as ordinary income, and then second as capital gains income, and then third as tax-free interest income, and lastly, return of principal income. But most commonly, 90% of the income coming out of a trust is going to be taxed as plain old ordinary income. Well, this is a wonderful strategy for someone. Didn't we have one listener who had a situation where he had inherited a sizable amount of stocks from a relative? Mm -hmm. And the thought of having to sell these stocks after many, many years of ownership, and, you know, of course, it was gifted to him before his relative's death. 
But the thought of cashing in these stocks was a monster problem with taxes, right? He was scared. He was in the stock market. He was scared. Didn't want to stay in the stock market. It was too high. Wanted to get out and move into something more conservative. But his accountant had told him, if you do, you're going to have to pay such a big hunk of capital gains tax because it's made so much profit for you that you can't come out. So he was just stuck as far as he was concerned. You're right. That's a classic case. And that worked out beautifully in his case. Because he did gift the stocks into the trust. Into the trust. And yet he kept control of the trust for the rest of his life. He will control this thing. But in addition, he also got a tax deduction for doing it and then got to sell the stocks 100% tax free of capital gains tax. Well, how is the tax deduction calculated? Well, now for moving the money into his own trust, there's a special IRS formula used to determine what's called the future value of a present gift. And this formula takes into account the present value of the gift and the donor's age and the income payment that he selects that he wants to have back to him. And then this criteria determines the value of the gift received at some time in the far distant future by the designated charity. And that's the tax deduction that you get for doing it today. So you get the tax deduction, but you also get the benefit of, if you invest that money within the trust, avoiding all the capital gains tax, and you get all the income. This is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000. Are these contributions to the charitable remainder trust revocable? That's the kicker, Lynn. They are not revocable. Since the IRS allows the avoidance of all capital gains taxes and also gives you a current, that's this year, charitable tax deduction, there must be an irrevocable guarantee that the gift will be received by a qualified charity sometime in the distant future. Can more than one charity be named as a charitable beneficiary of a charitable remainder trust? Lynn, the beauty of the charitable remainder trust, and a lot of people don't realize this, is you can set up one of these trusts. You can designate that you're going to control this thing for the rest of your life, and you can even say that the charity that you identify can be changed also. You can change your mind a million times during your lifetime and keep changing charitable beneficiaries or add different ones on. It doesn't have to be one. It can be changed many times and there is nothing that can't be changed as long as they still qualify as charities. Well, what assets can be transferred to fund the charitable remainder trust? Actually, Lynn, most any asset that doesn't have any mortgage or any debt on it can be transferred to a charitable remainder trust. There is caution and assistance that's recommended in transferring assets like real estate and closely held stock of businesses. That's another one that's a really wonderful idea. It's a way to pass your family business on and avoid the capital gains tax. But when you're dealing with those types of things called hard-to-value assets, you really need to work with a professional to make sure that it's done properly. But basically, any asset can be transferred as long as it doesn't have debt. Can only a portion of a particular asset be transferred into the charitable remainder trust? It can. You don't have to transfer the entire thing. This can be accomplished with the charitable remainder unit trust, and the client can choose to fund only part of the asset or the assets into the trust, and then later on can start adding a little more. You don't have to do the whole thing now. You can say, well, I think I want to move some into my charitable trust now, and then add more. What about being a trustee? Can a client be his own trustee? Actually, that's the real strength 
that not many people are aware of. A charitable remainder unit trust, of course, like any trust, is controlled by the trustee. But yes, you, the donor, can be your own trustee. Now, a donor may want to have a co-trustee who would also have an understanding of the duties of a trustee in case he became incapacitated or he wanted to. And very often when I have a co-trustee, Linda, I set it up as the spouse, the client. His spouse could be the co-trustee or it could be a child, have his child as the co-trustee. When a person has an asset, they probably want to retain some amount of control. If they shouldn't, then I'm going to tell them when they come to see me, you want to have 100% control as much as possible in every situation of your financial life. Never give up control if at all possible. Work with a financial planner that can show you how you can keep control of all of your lifetime assets and your afterlife assets also by doing certain type of estate planning and lifetime planning. Okay, well, I think that's a wonderful strategy. And if anyone has any other questions regarding the Charitable Remainder Trust or trusts in general, do give us a call at the office and we'll be happy to answer your questions. The number at the office is area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Jason, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I'm uh, 32 years old, married, uh, one child, and have a household income of about 85000 All right. I'm about to receive an inheritance of almost $600,000. All right. What, what would you do if you had that amount of money to, to plan for the future? Well, of course, that's very typical of a lot of our clients that come to us, and so it's a, it's a, it's a real-life question that we answer all the time in our practice. We get a lot of, of, of inheritances that come to uh, clients and so forth. Basically, you need to start with what's called an asset allocation model. Okay. And there are three methods of asset allocation that are practiced by financial planners out in the market today. One method is the one that we call, or I call, the 100% safest method or single investment method. And this method might be promoted by bond salesmen who say you need to get all of your money into bonds. They're nice and safe and get staggered maturities. Uh, another would be get it, put it all into guaranteed annuities. Another would be putting it all into guaranteed treasuries. The only problem I have, and, all, and also some people have their favorite stock and they put it all into one stock or all into 10 or 20 or 30 stocks. Mm -hmm. I don't like either of those methods, either of those, uh, I don't like that method because each story that I've heard through the years, I've got a horror story to tell you why it didn't work out. Right. So I don't like that. No matter how you try and diversify, all your eggs are in one basket. Now, with a guaranteed annuity, would I would I have to wait a year before I would able to actually have some, something liquid from that investment? I'd, I'd want to keep some of it liquid that I could dip into from time to time as needed. Yeah, no, you wouldn't have to. But first of all, if you've got if you're 32 years old with a child and you've got an 85 thousand dollar income and that's not enough to support you, you need financial planning real bad anyway. Oh well, no, that's not the case. Uh, okay, we're, we're doing fine. I just want to use this uh, money coming in as as wisely as possible. Right, right. But uh, um, what I'm saying is that the overall asset allocation should encompass the 600000 plus the surplus of your 85000 Good. Okay. Uh, and it needs to be built into a model. Well, so, I, I just found out about this last week, and then tell you the truth, I haven't uh, you know, looked at the details of what to do with it. Well, uh, let me go a little further and tell you what I think you should do. I told you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't use an asset allocation model that, figure this, that focuses on either the one guaranteed or the one safest type of investment. Okay. Another method that's out there is called the high-risk, low-risk method, typically divided into stocks, bonds, and cash. Most of the brokerage firms apply this method, and you'll see it advertised an awful lot, and they'll say, well, such and such a guru says you should be 
60% bonds and 40 or 30% stocks and 10% cash or 70% stocks, 20% bonds, 10% cash. That, in my opinion, also is fraught with error. That method doesn't work, in my opinion, because, again, you're presupposing what's high risk and what's low risk ahead of time, and then you're following that presupposition. So I don't like that method either. This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000. The third method of asset allocation is the uniform unit size method of allocation. And that's the method that I prefer, whereby we take a look at the portfolio and we spread the risk evenly over every investment we're going to choose. So if we've got a $600,000 portfolio, the first question is, what's the unit size? Mm-hmm. 100000 would be too big. Right. 50000 might be too small. Let me see what 75 is. If we've got $600,000 and if we had $75,000 units, then that would give you maybe eight units. That might be fine. Uh, maybe uh, 60,000 units to get you 10 uh, and so forth. But the unit size... So we'll set a figure and we'll say that no more nor less in any investment will be this dollar amount. The next thing I would recommend would be the multiple, uh, the, the managed money only approach. Instead of putting 60000 in this stock and 60000 in this bond and 60000 in this piece of real estate, etc., I would prefer 60000 in this pool of stocks, 60000 in this pool of bonds, 60000 in this pool of real estate, etc. That way you're betting on managers not on individual pieces of paper or pieces of real estate. You well, that's skip- what I'm doing with my uh, my 401k. Is right now that you know, really betting it on mutual fund managers and, and their track performance. Very uh, good. It would be basically the same thing, just with larger numbers. Except that you want to now go ahead and look at the goals of yourself. You need to work with a certified financial planner and determine what is the asset allocation model. Because after you've done that, then you want to get down to your debt pools versus your equity pools. Right. Uh, and then you want to look at total return versus current yield, and you want to put a, a, a debt-to-equity ratio on top of your portfolio. You want to put a current yield uh, target. You want to put a total return target, and you want to go ahead and put a liquidity ratio on your portfolio, and then uh, do some modeling with the help of a planner. Also, you need to have a lot of work done on risk tolerance. Risk analysis of the client and his wife should be part of the planning process before you do any investing. Okay. Uh, I think uh, if, you, if, you, if you use those, you should select a certified financial planner to walk you through the process because you do have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go ahead and accumulate a fair amount of wealth. You also could blow it real easy. And don't want to do that. Sounds like I need to give you guys a call during the week. And that number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Hey, I appreciate the free advice. And I'll get to work on uh, some of those models before I uh, call a planner. Yeah, and if, if, if you would like some information that we can provide, we have uh, some worksheets that we generally have folks fill out, you know, to look at where everything's at. And, okay. um, you know, in the, in the meantime, it would be good if you could write down the questions that you and your wife have uh, before you work with a planner. Okay? Well, great. Thank All you All right. Thanks, thanks so much for calling. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. Lynn, what's really new, would you say, in the world of retirement planning? Well, certainly as people are making transitions from either 
being forced to retire or being laid off from their job, there are a lot of transitions that they have to think about. A number of individuals in several weeks have called me at the office regarding taking the early retirement package, what to do with the TDSP, how do I plan for this transition, and uh, I wanted to just kind of go over that with you. It's crucial that people do have a game plan. And, you know, I remember one of the questions that one of the individuals had was, we have, you know, maybe $20,000 left on the mortgage. Should we pay that off with the IRA money or should we hold on to the mortgage? Another thing is now that we've got this lump that's in the TDSP or in the, the savings plan, the retirement savings plan, is it in the right place or should we invest it in some other vehicle to produce more income? What are your comments on that, Doug? Well, we have an immediate knee-jerk reaction when all of a sudden a life that has been ours for the last 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 years is suddenly being rearranged for us, either by opportunity or forced upon us. And the first knee-jerk reaction sometimes is to address one specific issue in a sense of panic, such as you mentioned, our mortgage. Gee, we got to get our mortgage paid off. Although, if you have long-term planning, it may be proper to address that. Sometimes it's not the best thing to quickly try and pay off the mortgage. Sometimes it may be. Very often, you're right. People think, well, maybe I could get my retirement money out, my TDSP, if it's a tax-deferred savings plan or 401k or IRA money, and do so. But that sometimes is the worst thing you can do because if you have to end up taking $10,000 out and paying Uncle Sam 3500 of that for taxes to take it out, and another 1000 so you end up paying Uncle Sam $4,500 taxes to get 10000 out to try and pay off a $10,000 mortgage, it may be the worst thing you can do. And by the same token, you may be faced with the question of, should I go ahead? Like one gentleman I've spoke with this past week, he tried to figure out, well, if he got the retirement monthly check they were offering him, it would just meet his living expense needs. But as we pointed out and went through his numbers, we realized that's exactly right. On the other hand, his children could have been deprived of an enormous inheritance if he lived long enough and if he could find a way to have his cake and eat it too, to take the entire lump sum and to have that reinvested to produce enough income to still support him and still have the lump sum. He didn't have to give up his lump sum just to meet his needs. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Now, if you're 59 and a half, you can take the money, right, in your retirement account without being penalized, correct? Actually, that's not correct, Linda. That's a confusion a lot of people have. You're going to pay taxes no matter what age you are. Exactly. <laughs> if you take possession, it's called constructive receipt. So let's say that you've got $100,000. If you say, I'll take that $100,000, I'm over 59 and a half, then you're going to go ahead and pay about $35,000 in income taxes to get your hands on it. On the other hand, if you're under 59 and a half, you have an additional penalty, so instead of paying 35000 in taxes, you'll pay 45000 in taxes. So all you get by being 59 and a half is you get the avoidance of that extra 10% penalty. Right. But in either case, you can do the IRA rollover and pay no taxes. And then only be taxed on what income comes to you, correct? Then you choose out of that IRA rollover how much you'd like to take out to live on and then pay taxes only on that. And if you're under 59 and a half, then you can go ahead 
and actually pay the 10%, the little 10% penalty on that monthly check that you're taking out of your IRA, which might only be $200, and you might have to pay an extra 20 bucks in taxes, but then you control it, not having it controlled for you. The overall advice is do not panic. Don't have a knee-jerk reaction to try and solve one specific part of your new world and create possibly another problem in another part. Don't try and solve the mortgage issue and hurt the retirement plan issue. Don't try and solve the cash flow issue and mess up the investment issue. Uh, Look at asset allocation. All these things, my overall advice is get help with a certified financial planner to look at the entire picture from the viewpoint of total planning, looking at all seven aspects. The knee-jerk reaction, trying to do it yourself, is trying really to do It's very similar to trying to do brain surgery on yourself. It's not a good idea, Lynn. Get your situation analyzed, right? Get your situation analyzed from a professional. And I want to commend all of our people out there. It seems like a lot of the folks that I speak to uh, at the office that call in have done a wonderful job of accumulating, but they get to the panic stage where they're wondering, now what? What do we do? Work with a financial planner. Certainly, if you want any information, I'll be happy to send you some. That number at the office is 8727000. Our money matter today is, why do I need a financial planner? Maybe you've asked, if I already have a stockbroker, insurance agent, accountant, and attorney, why do I still need a certified financial planner? Basically, there are five important reasons why you need one, or five important things a certified financial planner can do for you. Number one, asset allocation and portfolio management. A certified financial planner has the specific training to pull investment assets together into an organized plan to achieve a client's future financial objectives. Two, risk management or insurance coverages. When does one really need to purchase disability, life, property, and casualty insurance? These are all separate issues, and a certified financial planner can identify an individual's or a business's immediate and future needs for risk management. Number three, tax planning. A certified financial planner can prepare tax strategies for the oversheltered, the undersheltered, or the pre-retiree when a tax situation becomes complex. Number four, retirement and estate planning. A certified financial planner can perform spreadsheet applications for future retirement planning or have the tax knowledge needed when performing estate tax planning for family heirs. Number five, planning for professionals or small business owners. Should my business be formed as a corporation or as a partnership? How much personal liability is involved in operating my business? Again, a certified financial planner can steer you through business continuity issues or give advice when integrating the finances of the company and the business owner. Other good reasons you might need a certified financial planner? To plan for college costs, gifting strategies for tax relief, planning for nursing home costs for you or your parents. Recent history has established a track record of an unpredictable Wall Street, complex tax laws, and an onslaught of different financial vehicles. A certified financial planner is skilled in identifying an individual's goals and helping develop, implement, and monitor a plan to achieve them. You need a certified financial planner because a financial future is at stake, and it's yours. If you've been wondering about why you need a certified financial planner, I hope my comments have helped. Seek competent financial advice. And if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Well, Linda, do you have any write-ins you wanted to go ahead and ask? 
Yes, I certainly did. I had a lot of them. And um, one thing that kind of concerned me, Doug, was how important it is for people to do financial planning. Uh, I think we had some folks that were scheduled to come in. And at least in two instances, there were family members that had taken ill between the time that they made the appointment and they were going to come in. And when people are, I mean, you never know when something can happen. Uh, you can get cancer. It could be, a, you could be in a car accident. And it's important for people to get a handle on where they're at and where they want to go, don't you think? You're right, Lynn. You really are because you only know when you failed to plan after it's too late. Planning has to be done before the unknown occurs. You don't start a trip and halfway through the trip decide, now I'll get myself a map. You have to have the map before you begin the trip if you're going to plan the trip properly. And that's exactly, exactly yeah, and that's exactly I hear it all the time. I'll start planning after I reach this point or that point. Well, that's sort of backwards reasoning. You need the planning before you get to that point. Exactly. And I mean, I, I speak to literally hundreds of people. I speak to a lot of people during the week or, or within a month, month's time. But I'll speak to people and they'll say, well, I know I have some money in the retirement account, but I don't know how much I have. <laughs> and people need to know what they have and how much because they just need to plan. Right. We need to look at taxes, cash flow, investments, retirement, and estate, lay out a plan and know where we're going and how to get there. Work with a financial planner. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Doug, is there anything that a small business owner can do to reduce their taxes? There is something you can do, and it's called the SEP IRA, which stands for the Simplified Employee Pension Plan, IRA, can have a dramatic effect on lowering your taxes. And who establishes a SEP IRA? The employee sets up his own SEP IRA, but the employer puts the money into it. Well, what's the ideal size of the business? The ideal size for a SEP IRA is a self-employed individual or a small business, whether it be a partnership or a corporation. That's your ideal size for those that can use a SEP IRA. Okay. And who's the plan suited for? Well, when you're looking as a business owner and setting up a retirement plan, you have choices other than IRAs. You have SEP IRAs, you have pensions, you have profit-sharing plans, you have 401ks, and so on. But the SEP IRA is ideally suited for the employer who wants an effective tax shelter for himself, but doesn't want the cost or the administrative burden of a qualified plan for all of his employees that he's got to pay all the administration on. The employer using a SEP IRA doesn't have a need for features like loan provisions and the ability to have life insurance in the plan and all the exotic things that other ones do. He just wants an effective tax shelter but doesn't want to pay for the heavy administration cost of other retirement plans. Well, Doug, simply, what are the benefits of the plan? The main benefits, of course, are the same as any other type of retirement plan. I guess the features begin with the employee sets up his own IRA then the employer or the company makes the contributions. And then once it's set up like that, the simplified plan administration works as a very effective tax shelter, reducing the taxes of the business owner. The employer contributions are discretionary, so he does, he's not required to. But whatever percentage of his own salary or his own income that he puts into his SEP IRA, he must use that same percentage for each of his employees who's been with him, let's say, three years and is over 21 years old. Say, for example, they had 
an employee that was making 25000 how much would they contribute to that employee's, um, well, would it be an IRA? Right, right. In other words, he sets up, the employer sets up a SEP IRA for himself. Let's say he makes $222,000, and he figures out that 15% of his salary would be a little more than $30,000, but by the time you take that away from the net profit that the company made, it'll bring him down, and there he gets to put aside $30,000 into his own retirement plan. Okay. And he says, okay, I like to do it, but I've got an employee who makes $25,000. How much do I have to put in my employee's retirement plan? $3,750, 15% of that one. Okay, well, thank you for that exercise, Doug. Well, that's the way it works. <laughs> and if this sounds familiar to your situation... Call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Bill, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? What's the ideal time to jump in um, as far as how much money do you need to accumulate? I've, I've got money in the 401k with the company. I've got the, the cash accumulated now as far as uh, the emergency money. How much money do you recommend uh, trying to accumulate, whether it be in $500 or $1,000 increments, prior to starting to invest in some sort of uh, uh, investment? Well, first of all, let me see if I understand your... Well, first of all, Bill, how old are you? I'm 29. 29 years old. You're in a 401k plan at work right now. Yes. Now, let me see if I understand your question. Is your question... How long do you contribute to the 401k before you start contributing to something that's outside on your own? No, no, no. Uh, how long do you contribute cash, uh, as in just cash into a checking or a savings account, uh, before you start uh, making investments? Do you do it in, at 500 or $1,000 increments? Now, you're not talking about the 401k, are you? No, I'm talking about separate uh, investment purposes just to, to All right. wealth. right. Okay, I think what your question is, what's the proper emergency fund that should be maintained before you start investing? No, not really. No. I think I'm beyond that point. I've got about, uh, my expenses are roughly 2800 a month, and I've got about nine in cash. All right, 2800 a month, your expenses, and you've got 9000 in cash. All right, and, and, what's, your, and what's your income? Uh, 61. 61000 That's a nice income for a 29-year-old. I'm real proud of you. All right. You married? Yes. Good. Children? No. My is your wife working? Yes. Dual income, no kids called Dinks. Financial planning for Dinks. Okay. Now let me see if I can hit your question again. Is your question what's the unit size to start investing? Yes. The unit size doesn't matter as long as it's over fifty dollars. Okay. Most mutual funds will go ahead and take small increments, fifty dollars. Actually, I know some that will even take $25 if it's a regular monthly draft from your checking account. The important thing is to go ahead and use your living expense numbers of $2,800 a month. And then what, what's your net take-home monthly? Uh, with, with the both of us? Uh-huh. It's about 48 All right. That means that you've got 2000 a month. That's an excess. You should go, you see what I'm saying? If you're right. spending 2800 a month, you're bringing home 4800 a month. That's 2000 a month excess. You ought to set up an automatic pay yourself first plan, having that money drafted at the beginning of each month at the rate of $1,000 a month. You don't have to worry about the minimum because you're way above that. Take $1,000 a month and let that be drafted into two different mutual funds. And I would work with a financial planner to help you design a projected portfolio so you'd know which type of funds to be going into. Okay. 
and then you'll be dollar cost averaging. And it's a good age to do it at because that means you can be fairly aggressive because you've got a lot of years ahead of you. If you would like some more information on this, I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further. And you can call me at the office and the number is 8727000. That's USA 7000. And I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Well, then what's new in the area of estate planning? Well, you know, Doug, there's, there's definitely some vital information. If your parents haven't saved enough or planned for the possibility of spending time in a nursing home, the cost of that and other expenses could fall to you, the children. Unfortunately, many are ill-prepared to take care of their parents, Lynn, when the parents can no longer handle their own affairs. They're struggling to save enough for their own retirement and for their children's college education, and looking at how to deal with their parents is uh, is, is quite frightening. Yes, it certainly is. We're going to go over a, a little checklist that will help you organize your financial records and the information that you'll need if the time comes when your parents can no longer make decisions for themselves. The real thing are the essential documents, Lynn. We should have, for our parents, we should have certain documents and make sure we don't wait. Number one, there's got to be a will. A will that names a trustee or an executor uh, how the estate's supposed to be distributed, a trustee who's going to manage the assets, the executor who's going to make sure all provisions of the will are followed and pay the estate taxes and the expenses. And in many cases, this trustee and the executor can be the same person, have to have a will. Secondly, have a durable power of attorney. This document gives one person the power to legally conduct the affairs of another. And if one or both of your parents are incapacitated, this gives the designated person access to their assets so that the bills can be paid and you know all of their other affairs can be taken care of. So make sure you have a durable power of attorney. Right, Lynn. Third one is the durable power of attorney for health care. This is very crucial. It gives a designated person the authority to make medical decisions in the event that the patient is incapacitated. Now, this is not a living will, right? Right, because number four is a living will. Or This is also called a directive to the physicians. This states that medical situations in which a patient would not want to be kept alive, uh, that their desire could be uh, implemented. And it isn't legally binding, but it can relieve a family of the emotional burden of making this decision. And if you need a form, they're usually available at your doctor's office or at a retirement or nursing home, and that is the living will. Right. A lot of people confuse the living will, which is basically the desire to die a natural death, with the health care power of attorney, which is very different, and you should have both. Then there should be a letter of instruction. This is a letter for the beneficiaries of the will and the trust, and it's designed to make it easier for the family to close out the affairs. You know, it should include the names of those to notify upon death, funeral arrangements, last wishes, and the disposal of assets. And although it's not a legal document, it should be in agreement with the will and kept with the rest of the documents or with the estate plan. And the last is your inventory of finances. This would be a list of all your financial and legal documents where they can be found. And what you should do is keep one copy in a safe deposit box or maybe another copy with your financial advisor, your executor, your heir, or your spouse. And as far as that checklist on the inventory of finances, you know, make sure you've got, you know, the person, your, your parents' name, their social security number, who, uh, you know, some important names and phone numbers should, that should be kept handy might be a clergyman, uh, the attorney that they're using, who their CPA or their accountant might be, who, uh, 
works with their investments, their financial planner, their insurance agent, and who are the relatives and close friends that they that would need to be contacted? Lynn, I guess lastly, there are other money considerations in estate planning for parents. You should scrutinize the insurance policies for over or under coverage, check auto, life, disability, and so on. You want to pay particular attention to health insurance. And I guess lastly, consult an estate expert, a certified financial planner who works in the area of estate planning and make sure it's done right. The comfort that the family is taking care of everything ahead of time is such a comfort then you can go ahead and enjoy the rest of your parents' lives, knowing that it's all been done properly. Parents appreciate it, and the families appreciate it. It's definitely important for people who do have parents that maybe have sizable assets or assets in general, uh, that they assist them with their financial planning right. in working with an advisor. That's right. Seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 8 8- Seven two seven thousand. Well, let's take another call. Norbert, how can I help you this evening? Yes, Doug. What is your idea of having a revocable trust in place of a will? First of all, do you know what a revocable living trust is, Norwood? I think so. I've been doing a lot of reading, and it's... Uh... All right. Let me, let me tell you the real story, and let me tell you what to watch out for. Okay. The first thing is, a revocable living trust is a trust you set up that allows you to change your mind later on. Right. It's a living trust, which is an estate planning trust that lets you retain control over your property during your lifetime, Mm -hmm. but you avoid probate costs when you die. What a revocable living trust will not do for you is save any taxes, okay? It wasn't the taxes, it was the probate. All right, how how large is your estate, Norwood? I'll see if I can give you some ideas. Around 200,000. And have you ever made any large gifts through your lifetime? No. Who's it going to, by the way? You have children? Mm-hmm. Okay. Three children. Three children. You got a wife? Yes. And is her estate included in the 200000 Mm-hmm. Okay. It will go to her first if, if, I, if she survives me, you know, and then All right. the children. And assuming she doesn't remarry a multimillionaire, then, right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> then the 200000 can pass totally tax-free to the kids. So there's no reason that you should worry about a type of trust that has tax benefits. That's right. fine. Now then, do not use a revocable living trust instead of a will. Mm-hmm. Use it along with a will, which we call a pour-over will. The pour-over will is going to be a simple little maybe you know, one-sheet will that says anything that you forget to have in your revocable living trust at the time of your death pours over into that revocable living trust. Oh, okay. Oh, Something might slip by from the time you create this revocable living trust. You want to go ahead and have an attorney create a revocable living trust and transfer everything that Norwood owns into a revocable living trust that Norwood is the trustee of. Right. So you're just basically changing the ownership from Norwood to Norwood as trustee for Norwood's revocable living trust. Absolutely. Uh Then you set up a second trustee who will replace you at your death and you write that into the trust document. Right. Typically, that would be your wife. Mm -hmm. That will do two things. Number one, if you become incapacitated, it will save her the problem of having to get powers of attorney and so forth, and, and, and that can be a nightmare. Right. Number two, it will keep her at your death from having to be hounded by people who are unscrupulous, who look in the newspapers and research estates and find out what you had when you died, because right. it's not knowledge. It's not public knowledge. What's owned by you outside of trust in your, taxable, in your probate estate is public knowledge. Right. But what's owned by this trust is not known. 
Only the beneficiaries of the trust know it. It bypasses probate and therefore it will keep those costs down, but it also is for confidentiality purposes. Mm-hmm. All right. Once you keep those features in mind, and if you weigh them against the cost of setting up the trust, put those two things against each other, and that's my advice to you. Well, that sounds like good advice because I've, I've, I've read about these things before, and I've went to the library, and I checked out books, and you get the prepackaged forms, and you see them in all the magazines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch out for them. And, there's, uh, a big, there's a big burn game going on out there, and it's called burn your neighbor. You right. know what I mean? You don't want to get involved in those. That's, I mean, you're dealing with something that you'll be dead when you find out or somebody finds out that it didn't work. Right. Norwood, if you would like to call the office at 872-7000, I'll be happy to send you some more information that I think you'll find very educational and informative about estate planning and trusts. Okay, that's 872-7000. Yes, and if you'll call me this week at the office, I'll be happy to send you this uh, some brochures and information regarding this. Good, I sure will. Okay, very good. Right, well, thanks again. All righty. Right. Thank you, Norwood. Right, thank you. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember... Your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Saturday and Sunday at 5 p.m. for Money Matters with the Lewises on 680 WPTF.